God, we celebrate this morning, once again, the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, and all that that means for us and to us. Not only in leading us to hope, hope that we have in future grace, but hope that we have for today. A life that doesn't have to be the way it was. Being resurrected from the deadliness of our former sins and former life and raised to life, to newness of life so that we can walk in holiness as he who called us is holy, that we can be holy in all our conduct. Not because of self-effort, not because of personal discipline or pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but in leaning and surrendering and depending upon the power of your Holy Spirit in the ministry of your word to us. Oh God, this morning we pray that that ministry would be sweet to us as we look into your word, the living and abiding and powerful word of God, that it would have its way this morning, oh God, in our hearts, that your presence would be experienced through the passage that we'll be looking at from 1 Peter, that you would do your convicting work, transforming work, and changing work in us. And God, if there's anyone here today that does not know you as Savior, oh God, that you would bring them into relationship with yourself through faith in Jesus, that there would be uh, repentance and forgiveness of sin and cleansing and changing of life and transformation. Do all of that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I wonder this morning if we were to have a conversation and I were to, to meet you for the first time and ask you to describe yourself, uh, who are you, what would you say? How would you answer that question? Uh, maybe you would say, well, I'm a, I'm a mom or I'm a dad, I'm, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a grandparent. Or maybe you'd say, I'm, a, I'm an employee, I'm a teacher, I'm a nurse, I'm an engineer. I'm a doctor, I'm a laborer, I'm a business owner, whatever you might say to, to fill in the blank that would describe who you are in, in essence and in what you do from, from day to day. But I wonder if those are secondary, and there's no wondering about it, of course those are secondary to, to what God has made you and called you to be if you're a follower of his. Jesus defines who you are in John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, when he's speaking to the woman at the well, and he wants her to understand the fundamental essence of why we exist. It's certainly to bring God glory, but it's to bring God glory through the context of worship. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Just pause for a moment. You can be sure that if the Father is seeking those kinds of people, that's exactly what he's made you to be. He's made you to be a worshiper. And he's not asked you to do something that he has not also equipped you to carry out. He's called you to do this through his power. Verse 24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit 
and truth. Must worship through the power of the Holy Spirit in the inner workings of your life and must worship according to the Word of God, the the truth that, that we have through the Scripture. You have been born to new life, to spiritual life, through the, the, the pathway of the work of the Spirit and the work of the Word in your life. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You were made to worship. For, this, for the past several weeks, we have been kind of looking at First uh, Peter and, and, and building on the theology that we saw in the first several verses. We've moved from doctrine now to application. We've moved from the the celebration and recognition of all the amazing things that that God has said about himself and and, and the the marveling at the majesty of God and and his work in salvation and and the hope that we have in heaven, this, this imperishable, living hope that we have in heaven and now transitioning to exhortation, to command. That based upon these truths, there's something that must be true about you. And so over the last several weeks, as we've been stepping into this, we have seen, beginning in verse 13, that that there must be something fundamentally true about you as an individual in terms of, of, of one who is hoping in future grace. That's the that's the priority, that's the perspective, that's the alignment of your life. Based upon the grace of God for you, you can look forward to future grace because of a resurrected living Savior who's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. We have seen that uh, this section of scripture that we're in that begins in chapter one, verse 13, runs all the way to chapter two, verse 12, it is bookended by similar commands. Be holy. And in the middle, we not only find the what, but we find the how. How can you live this way? What is the, what is the mechanics, the power that you have in, in order to accomplish the purpose that God has called you to do and to be? So this morning as we come to our passage in verses 22 to 25, we're, we're now working uh, in, a, in a new framework of, of building on the what, the what you have been called to, and, and now we're seeing the why or the how. How can you live this way? How can you do the things that God has called you to? And we're going to see that God has fundamentally changed everything about you. If you are a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're one who, who has placed your faith in Jesus, there's something wholly different about you. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So turn with me if you would. 1 Peter chapter 1, hopefully you're already there. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 25. I'll read that for us this morning, and then we'll dig into this piece by piece. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news 
that was preached to you. I want to begin uh, this morning by, by calling your attention to the fact that, that you have been given a new command. A new command. We see that here at the end of verse 22. It is the main verb, the main imperative, the command of this section. It is the theme of these verses as these verses are connected in, in, in one sentence, one thought. You and I are commanded to love. You were born to love. And that is the expression of your worship to God, your expression of worship, what God has called you to be. The Father seeks such to worship him. You worship him through obedience. You worship him through your love. Now, now why do I say this is a new command? Well, because Jesus says as much in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The quality of your life, the mark of whether or not you belong to Jesus, whether or not the new seed that we're going to look at in just a little bit, the new seed of the word of God, if if God has made you wholly new, wholly different, wholly changed from the inside out, the mark of that is that you will be a person who loves and loves this way. And I, Jesus calls attention to this new commandment. We, we understand that this commandment is actually anchored in the Old Testament. We find that uh, from Matthew chapter 22, 35 to 40, where Jesus is an a- answering a question about, about the greatest law of the prophets in the Old Testament where he says, A lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Okay, so at this point you're like, Wait a second, Jesus. Why do you say this is a new commandment? It sounds like it's anchored in the Old Testament, and actually it's anchored, as the Apostle John says in his little letter of 1 John, it's actually anchored in the beginning, because it's anchored in God. God, who is love, he is the standard of holiness, the standard of love. He's calling us to this standard. It's actually anchored in the Old Testament. So how is this new? Well, it's new because, not not just new in that it's, we're called to do this, but new because we have a new capacity. You have a new capacity to do what you could never do before. You can love. I'm reissuing this command, and now through the power of the Spirit, you can actually carry this out. You can actually do what I've called you to do. But immediately we come to a concern, a a danger. The danger of this is that love has become very common. Love in our and our economy has become very second place. We, we talk about love in, in terms of superficial things. I, I love chocolate ice cream. We talk about I love my wife. Now hopefully your love for chocolate ice cream isn't the same as your love for your kids or for your wife. Actually the word in the New Testament not only used in our passage this morning in 1 Peter, but also used by Christ in John chapter 13, is the word agapao. It's unconditional love. We, we've, we've learned about this before. 
But I want you to understand it is the love of the will. It's a love of decision. It's not a love of emotion. It's not the, the love of polite interactions in the church. It's not the love of, of fuzzy sentimentality. It's not the cushy, ushy, gushy kind of love. It's a, the love of substance. The love that Peter has in view is neither warm, fuzzy, or a friendship around a coffee pot, although those may be included. It refers rather to righteous relationships with each other that are based on God's character, which Christians uh, reflects because they are born of the same seed. It is love of decision, a love of choice, a love that overcomes, a love that forgives, a love that endures, a love that believes the best, a love that sticks with it. It's a kind of love that seems rather absurd to the world. It's a love that presses in, that takes initiative, that meets needs without an agenda, that comes, that covers a multitude of sins. It lays down preferences. It does not look out for its own interests. It's the kind of love that is loyal, dependable, enduring. It's the kind of love that overlooks insult and injury of those around you. We might say that this is the kind of love that is willing to be inconvenienced. When I was in high school, I was probably around a, a junior or a senior in high school, and my next youngest sister was three years younger than me. Now, just to give you an idea of my, of my amazing physique while I was in high school, um, I remember my, uh, my driver's license, my first driver's license, um, I was five foot five and 105 pounds. So I was a very massive character. <laughs> yes, you laugh. Well, my sister, uh, three years younger than me, um, she was also a little awkward, like I was. And, um, and, and, and growing up in a, in a little town of Cedarville, where everyone knows that you're the pastor's kid, you become kind of a, a target of, of whatever, not kind things. And, and she was a target. Now, the relationship between myself and my sister wasn't always as happy as I wish it could be. But there was somebody in her study hall who was older than her, probably in my class, who would um, every day gleek on her. Do you know what gleeking is? Okay, so you know when you yawn, that kind of stream of water that sometimes shoots out when you, when you yawn? You know what I'm talking about now? Okay, well, he knew how to gleek without yawning. So he would gleek at will, and he would always be gleeking on my sister. Now let me tell you, I was ready to go to war. And that's what family love does. It's independent of physique, it's, it's independent of ability sometimes. <laughs> but it's ferocious kind of love. It's the active, initiating, get involved kind of love. And I want you to understand, it's the family love that Jesus exemplified for his church. The kind of love that Jesus, that God says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That Jesus came to conquer sin and death. He came to eradicate it for his people. 
It is the kind of love that you and I have been called to, the kind of love that engages, the kind of love that cares, the kind of love that initiates, that gets involved, that knows what's going on. And so I just encourage you, just in this moment, okay, just a little experiment, I want you to look around, left, right, look around at the people who are sitting next to you, okay? Some of you are, are obeying, some of you are not. <laughs> It's okay, it's okay. I want you to know, this is your family. This is the family that God has put you in relationship with. And if you're here, this is, this is the family that, that God has called you to exercise this passage to. This kind of brother, brotherly love that we're gonna talk about this morning is the kind of love you have been called to carry out to the people in this fellowship, the people who are here, the people who are not here, the people that you know and have been acquainted with uh, that haven't even come back to to fellowship with us yet. Those are the people that God has put you in relationship uh, with. Those are the people you are called to love in this way. This isn't uh, the kind of, of theoretical kind of love. This is the kind of love that the nitty gritty, substantial Take action kind of love. Press in kind of love. So how do we do this? Well, the, the, the main verb is to love one another, and it's supported by two other verbs that we're gonna look at now. The one is found in verse 23. The other is found in verse 22. They're, they're both perfect participles. And we'll talk about this a little bit more as we go, but I want you to understand that, that a perfect uh, verb is the word that, that looks back on past action, and, and because of a, a past action, there is a present result, that, that I'm experiencing the results of, of something that happened before. So, like, for example, if your stomach is growling right now because you're thinking about lunch, it's probably because you didn't have breakfast. So there's a, there's a result of that, of that action. So have breakfast next time. You won't have a grumbly tumbly. So what are those two verbs? The, the, the first verb is found in verse 22. I want to just call your attention to them so you can see them as we go. It is having purified your soul. It's the word purified. That's the first verb. And that's the first way in which we can love God's way. The second is found in verse 23. You have been born again. It is now a recipients of action. Action that happened a long time ago. Action that we're experiencing the benefits right now. Okay, those are the two verbs. Those stand in parallel with one another. They describe one thing that we're gonna look at as we move forward. So, God has given you a new command. Now I want you to understand that God has given you a new life. You have a wholly new life, entirely new. You can love because you're not the same person anymore. You've been wholly new. And this new life will be punctuated by this first verb, purification. Having purified your souls, your life will be marked by purity. That's what we see here. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. This word purified is the word to ceremonially cleanse, to have moral virtue, to consecrate, 
It's the word in the Old Covenant structures, the Old Testament law kind of structures that, that, that helped people to prepare their, themselves for worship. That's what we've been called to do. God has created us as worshipers. And so in order to, to prepare themselves for worship, they consecrated themselves. They purified themselves. We find this happening in Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. It says, the Lord said to Moses, this is Mount Sinai, by the way, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. This purification, preparation, cleansing their their hands, washing their garments, perhaps uh, trimming beards and cutting hair, this preparation of worship. We see the same thing in John 11, 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves, to get ready for worship. But there's something fundamentally deficient about this kind of purification. It it only deals with the externals. It it doesn't get to the actual heart of the person. It it doesn't actually cleanse an individual and, and prepare them entirely for the work of worship. Something more had to happen, and, and, and God knew this and called attention to this in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, where he, he alludes to this new covenant that we're talking about this morning. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. That's the purification process. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice that God is the one who's performing for the people what they cannot do for themselves. He he is the one who's who's cleansing the heart. He's the one who's washing them and making them new from all their uncleanness. He's the one who puts his spirit within them and and helps them to, to worship in the way that he's called them to worship. So why the terminology of you have purified your souls? If this is a work of God, what part do we play in this process? What does this have to do with with uh, love. Well, let's press into this a little bit more. Let's move to the second verb, the second pillar that supports this idea. It's found in verse 23. Not only will you have a purified life, you'll have a life that is marked with power. Marked with power. It says in verse 23, since you have been born again. You've been born again. This, again, is a, is a perfect participle. Uh, we saw this verb in verse 3. In that verse, it described, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, by his great mercy, caused us to be born again. It is a work of the Father in, because of his great mercy to, to, to bring us into salvation. It is the only time, other time that this word is used in the New Testament. So, so what are we talking about? Well, I want you to understand this is talking about the power of God to change your life. The power of God to fundamentally change everything about you. 
the, the purification process and, and this new life process that, that God is the one who is responsible for. And let me just draw your attention and, and lead you through this. First, I, I want you to see as we look at, at this first verb and, and especially as it relates to this second verb, how, how these verbs come together. You have purified yourself and you have been born again. I want you to understand that, that both of these verbs, because they're perfects, look back at a specific point in time. They, they look back to a point of origin. They look back to a, to a, a place where perhaps the, the seed was sown and now the fruit is flourishing in a life. So, so the love that you have, the, pure, the purity in your life that you have is a result of something that happened before. This new life that you enjoy is a result of, of a life that had been, had been uh, birthed at some point in time. It begins at a at a specific point in time. Did I make sure? There we go. Understand where it begins. Sorry, not being clear. Second, I want you to notice the extent or the depth to which this sanctification work happens. Notice it says, you have purified your what, church? You have purified your soul. That soul is the essence of who you are. It, it, is the, it is the substance of your very being. It's your entire life. It is the deepest part of you. So not just the consecration of hands, the, the washing of faces, the washing of clothes, but it, it is the kind of, of purification that happens at the deepest level of who you are. The, the essence of, of who you are as an individual. Who does this work? Of course, the Holy Spirit does this work. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, He saved us, not by works uh, done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Third, notice the result. The result of this sanctifying process. It says, obedience to the truth and when we talk about being born again, we're born again because of the word of God, the living and abiding imperishable seed of the word, both connected to the scripture. This result of obedience, we can look back at verse two, chapter one, verse two. We can see that we're sanctified by the spirit and the result of that sanctification in verse two is what? Obedience to Jesus Christ. Well, obedience to Christ in verse two, obedience to the truth in verse 22. They have the same result. Fourth, I want you to recognize that these two words, these two verbs are parallel. They work together to describe the same activity, the same function. It's, it's talking about conversion. You purified your soul in obedience to the truth and you have been born again by the living and abiding word of God. Both of these working together to describe the work of God in conversion. You have a new life based upon the purity, the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the power of God to, to raise you to new life, to, to newness of life. So why does Peter... Why does Peter put it in these terms? Why does he say, you have purified your souls in obedience to the truth? The reason is because Peter wants you to understand that, 
that there is a measure of responsibility. On one side, we're looking at this conversion from a human perspective. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is a responsibility. A responsibility that you have to respond to the light of the gospel, the glorious light of the gospel that is shining into your hearts. You have a responsibility to bow the knee, to repent, to ask for forgiveness, to to plead with God for, for his cleansing power, to make him the Lord of your life. And from that perspective, purification happens. As you yield yourself to God, his spirit does the purifying work, and then you remember, you call to your attention. You remember back that purification that the spirit did for you and you live in the reality of that sanctifying work of the Spirit. And as you live in the reality of that sanctifying work, you continue to remind yourself of the work of God in making you clean and able to love this way. Does that make sense? And it only happens because of the new seed. It happens because of the new birth. The birth of this imperishable seed, the, the word of God that lives and abides forever. We have a new command. We have a new life. But we also find in verses 22 to 25, you have a new family. You have an entirely new family. We see that towards the end of verse 22. It says, You have purified your soul in obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. You have a new family because you've been put in a new relationship. You've been put in a relationship with others who are called to the same family, who have the same father, who've been made one with God through faith in Jesus. This word brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. We find it in 1 Thessalonians 4.9. It says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. It's fundamental. It's built into the gospel. Those who are called into Christ's family understand that we have a responsibility to love in Christ's way to the people that he loves. We love whom he loves. One's covenant relationship with God is never an individual matter. And we know in society today how much individuality is promoted. And in the scripture, what's promoted is the corporate nature, the fellowshipping, unifying aspects of the body. You belong to one another because you all belong to Jesus. To be chosen by God and set apart by the Spirit for the purpose of participating in the covenant in Christ means necessarily coming into relationship with others who are also so chosen. The Christian life cannot be lived authentically in isolation. You cannot carry out the Christian life on your own. It's impossible. You cannot do the one another commands without being with the body, serving one another, loving one another, praying with one another, bearing one another's burdens. You cannot do what God has called you to do. You cannot be obedient without being together. You need the body. I need you. God has put us together. Now there are some qualities of this brotherly love that we see in verse 22. 
What are some of those qualities that you can pick out? There are four of them, okay? See if you can identify them. What are those four qualities? What do you see? Help me with the first one. Quality of brotherly love, what do you see? What's that? From the heart, that's good. That's the last one, we'll get to that one, that's good. From the heart, what else do you see? What kind of brotherly love are we talking about here? Genuine, sincere, fantastic, okay? That's the first one. What else do you see? What other kind of brotherly love is there? Earnest, fantastic, good. What else do you see? Inconvenient, okay? So loving fervently from a pure heart, okay? Loving one another, purity is the, is the last one, okay? Let's deal with them one at a time and deal with them briefly. Your love, first of all, should be sincere. Your love should be sincere. This is the word for genuine, without hypocrisy. Let love, in verse, uh, Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. This is the kind of love that's willing not to play games. The kind of love that doesn't wear a mask. The kind of love that's willing to be genuine. The kind of love that's willing to be transparent. The kind of love that's willing to say, you know what, to this week really didn't, this wasn't really, really a good week. Whatever it might be for you. Or this coming week, I've got some really, I've got some really bad things coming. Or maybe you say, my life really isn't where I want it to be spiritually. Will you please pray for me? It's the kind of love that's willing to be all in and out there, transparent. It's not the kind of love that, that, is, that is walking or going through the motions. Do we have a kind of love that's willing to press in in that way, to be genuine and sincere. That's the kind of love you and I have been called to. Sincere, genuine, unhypocritical kind of love. Next, your love should be earnest. Should be earnest. It's only used three times in the New Testament, and, and quite possibly here, it carries the sense not, not just of fervency, but of the continuing, enduring work of, of love. It's the kind of love we find in 1 Corinthians, the, the kind of love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That kind of love. The kind of love that, that goes the distance. Interestingly, the only two times in the scripture where this word is used, earnest, it, it actually is in the context of, of, of Peter experiencing or, or not experiencing this kind of earnest love. In the first instance, Jesus, who was praying earnestly in the garden, asked Peter, will you join me? Will you love me this way and pray for me, pray with me? And Peter, as you know, and the rest of the disciples didn't love Jesus earnestly in that way at that time and fell asleep three times. On the other occasion, Peter was the beneficiary of earnest love where while he was in jail, the, the church in Acts chapter 12 prayed for him earnestly and he was delivered. He was a beneficiary of earnest kind of love. Fervent, continual kind of love. The, the kind of love that, that presses in. Do we have that kind of love? 
Your love should also be pure, clean, the kind of love that is unsoiled, unstained, unpolluted, the kind of love that doesn't have ulterior motives, the kind of love that isn't looking for how you are a beneficiary or how you receive the the fringe benefits of, of your expressed interest towards others or affection to others. It is love that's willing to give without getting, the kind of love that's willing to lay down preferences, pure, undefiled kind of love. And finally, your love should be from the heart, a love from the heart. It's the kind of love that comes from the deepest part of you. It's a matter of the will, but also a matter of the heart. There is genuine concern, genuine compassion, genuine sympathy. Finally, and we'll look at this more next week, we have an imperishable seed. We're in relationship with one another, but we also have an imperishable seed, the seed of the word of God. And, and Peter continues to call attention to this in this church. He, he wants them to understand this life is temporary. Live for what matters. Recognize that your life is, is so, uh, such like a vapor here on earth. You're, you're looking forward to what, to what matters in eternity. You are not a citizen of this earth. You're a, you're a citizen of heaven. And you have been born of imperishable seed. And so your life should be marked by that power, by that undiminishing quality of love. That seed of the word should rise in your life. He's continually comparing and contrasting the eternal versus the temporal. Everything is new. You have a new father new habits, new citizenship, new inheritance, new joy, new mind, new family, new hope, new seed. All of these things are are wholly new for you and they're wholly eternal because of the eternal seed that's been born in your heart. So the call for us this morning is to love in this way, to love the way that we have been called to love, to love the way that we have been born to love to love like Jesus. And so as we now transition to our time of of remembrance and communion, we, we remember the one who first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. We remember that love. So let me pray as we transition to our communion time. God, thank you for the love of Christ. The love of Christ played out for us and given to us sacrificially, given to us earnestly, without holding back, you gave your very best, the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish or spot. So Lord, as we think about the purpose that you've called us to, the the new life that we have because of Jesus, we, we pray that that life would show up in us and bear fruit in us and around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.